Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's um, not October. It's April the 14th, 2022. Um, the headlines remain deeply depressing for people watching this. You can see an image of destruction in Ukraine, invasion, fighting, killing. Some people suggest mass murder. Um, Biden even talked about genocide. Uh, Putin says that the peace talks with Ukraine are at a dead end. One wonders what those peace talks were, whether he was taking them in any way seriously. Um, the Finns and the Swedes have been talking about joining NATO, which um, has triggered Russia to talk about nuclear expansion. Um, the US is sending Ukraine more weapons, um, uh, whilst uh, Zelensky is calling for even more. I think he wants as many as, as, as we have. Um, this all, of course, raises the specter of, of why we fight wars, of what wars are all about. Can we make sense of them? How do we change wars from peace? And my guest today on the show has spent an academic life thinking about these things. He has uh, an important new book out, Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. Of course, it was written before uh, Putin invaded Ukraine. But I want to begin there. Uh, Christopher Blackman teaches at the University of Chicago, where he's talking to me from. Chris, this narrative of what happened in Ukraine, of course, it took place, as I said before, after you wrote the book. But how does it fit in to the themes in the book, why we fight, the roots of war and the paths to peace? Well, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, so... One of the, the first and biggest lesson from the book is that most of the time we don't fight. Uh, and that's hard to remember because, of course, we do. I wrote a book called Why We Fight, and this is one of these instances. Uh, all our attention gets sucked up by this mess. But I think it's, it's important to remember that this is not what normally happens. Uh, and, and that it will end, and that it will end in a settlement eventually. Um, most of the time, adversaries settle without fighting. Uh, you know, we can, you know, a, a stark example came two weeks into the invasion. Pakistan, sorry, India accidentally launched a cruise missile at Pakistan. And common zoo. Uh, neither power has any interests in starting a war because it would be so ruinous, even if it wasn't a nuclear one. So... Uh, and that's that's basically that's the key insight that war is so destructive and costly on so many levels that that rivals you know war is bargaining by war is, war is politics by other means but just ridiculously costly means and so and that's just self-evident just from what's happening between Ukraine and Russia today and so the message so if the first insight is we don't fight and it's because war is ruinous the second insight is that every reason we do end up fighting is because somebody, at least one side, had reasons to ignore those costs or overlook them. Some other, the, some other powerful incentive ran against that. 
and uh, and the book is about how these come in five varieties. There's a million re reasons for wars in the world, uh, but they follow sort of five logics as to why we why we ignore them. And I think we can and 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 it you know every war plays out through those five logics, and this is no exception. Uh, Chris, we had um, a different conversation a few days ago with the um, and New York University uh, philosopher, political thinker, Bruce Buena de Mesquita. Um, I know Bruce and his son is a professor here is a few doors down for me and a good colleague and friend. Right. Well, his new book, The Invention of Power, Popes, Kings and the Birth of the West, Mm -hmm. deals also with violence and it's very much based on game theory as all his work is you're also yep. a game theorist aren't you i'm not sure if well, you're in the same game theory camp as de mosquito but you mm -hmm. seem to be very influenced by thinking through the world in in terms of reasonable actions and game theory or am i not doing you justice that is part of the theoretical apparatus like that I sort of use. Now, I'm an empiricist, so I run out, I go to the world and I try to collect, I, my stick is I go and I collect data in wars or on gangs or organized criminals or rebel groups that nobody else has collected. And then I try to answer questions and I try to test theories. Uh, but to do that, I need to arm myself with theories. Some of those come from game theory, some of them come from psychology. So when I talk about the five reasons for war, you know, three of them are more strategic, which is code for game theory. Two of them are more psychological. One of them is, you know, Bruce is a is is in some sense very an inspiration. A lot of his work has contributed to this. So the first and most basic one is I call unchecked interests. Uh, it's a simple idea. If your leader is not uh, accountable for these costs, especially an autocrat. Uh, then why would they pay attention to them in this decision? So when 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 you know when if war is politics by other means, why choose politics when when you can fight? Or why why and, and especially if you don't you know you're not bearing most of those costs, so you you can safely ignore them. And and indeed we can see that at work here. Uh, you, Russia, what you're saying then is is it, nothing's hurting Putin. He can get away with it essentially. Well, he you know some he bears some of the costs, and and this is a risky move for him. Let's not. So so it's maybe not. It's not sufficient to bring him to war, but it, it makes him much too ready to use violence. And in particular, what often happens, um, and Bruce has a whole book on American presidents and, and on how they've been too ready to use war, starting with George Washington. Uh, they, you know, sometimes leaders, especially personalized leaders, especially autocrats like Putin, have a private incentive to go to war. Something So they, against the interests of their group, they will take the country to war. And I, and I think that's very present here. Um, Ukraine is uh, right on the border. It's the one place on the planet that Russians really identify with the people more than anywhere else. And they have had two democratic revolutions, color, peaceful color revolutions in the last 10 years. And that's an incredibly threatening example to have right there. And that is why Putin wants to exterminate democracy. It's in his strategic interest. Uh, it threatens his regime. It doesn't threaten Russians. Why would it? It threatens him and it threatens his cabal. And so this unchecked interest ignoring the costs and then having this autocratic private incentive to exterminate a threat to his regime right next door is gets us very far in understanding uh, why we find ourselves fighting today. Go over the other four, Chris. Sure. So I call them intangible interests, misperceptions, uncertainty and commitment problems. And let me talk about <clears throat> two of those, just for an example. Uh, 
intangible, the two psychological ones, which is another sort of apparatus site, and not just a sort of influenced by game theory, influenced by a lot of psychology and behavioral science and what it's taught us. And intangibles are the things we value and that we get from war, or and that someone, a, a leader like Putin gets from war, that uh, that are, are ethereal, right? It's not the material things at stake, it's the ideals and the ideologies and the principles. And we hear, most of the stories you hear about Putin fit into this category. So when you hear when you hear claims that it's his nationalistic ideologies uh, and his de desire to uh, for personal glory uh, or his desire to be the next Catherine the Great uh, or to knock this off his bucket list before he dies of thyroid cancer, you know, you hear so many versions. There's something ethereal that he values that is over. So so that is that basically leads him to ignore the costs he does bear. Uh, and so th there's a whole host of these intangibles that I think are that popular accounts that are partly true, I think, suggest are sort of help us further explain why he would ignore these costs of war. Uh, so not just that he's unchecked, but that he is pursuing these intangibles. And then the second psychological one I call misperceptions, and it's all the mistakes we make, all our human follies. And that is the other story you really commonly hear. You don't hear the strategic stories in the news. You mostly hear about his intangibles and you hear about his misperceptions, his mistakes, his overconfidence, uh, his delusion. Well, we hear about that in the West. I'm sure you don't hear about that in Moscow. That's true. That's true. No, they don't hear about that. Um, but you, you get these, yeah, like the U.S. intelligence reports that he's not getting the right information. That that, like many autocrats, personalized autocrats, he's insulated from bad news, um, and that happens. So that's also probably partly true, uh, and but and it's also part of the story. But it's a part of the story because. It means he's he's misestimating the situation. He's ignoring the costs and he's overestimating his success rate. And so he's more ready to use violence. So in this sense, he's not reasonable. He's not he's not behaving in a rational way. So that is the that is the one in some sense. This is the one of, of the five. This is the one thing that says sometimes leaders are irrational, although rather than saying irrational, I would say they are calculating. And I think he is calculating, but they might be operating with erroneous beliefs. So I think like most of the time, I don't think people, I don't think over sustained periods of times, our passions and our, our rationality overtake us and explain that much more. Of course, a little bit. A, do you, do you think that um, if there is ideology or interest in your work, mm -hmm. that you're trying to suggest that war isn't rational, isn't reasonable? Well, I mean, listen, our ideology is our ideology. And so if we act in a calculating fashion to sort of pursue our ideology, there's not necessarily anything irrational about that. Now, where does our ideology come from? And do they shape our beliefs, of course? So I, I don't want to label that irrational. I, that's why I sort of, mm. like, I call it intangibles. And, and listen, our values are our values. And, uh, and they can be noble or they can be evil. Um, but but I'm, not, I'm not quite, I'm not going to call them irrational. Well, I, I was suggesting that maybe your values creep into your analysis, but what about the fourth yes. and fifth? Um, the fourth and fifth reasons for war. So, like unchecked leaders, the fourth and fifth are strategic in nature, in the sense that we're thinking ahead to the, the actions our, our our adversaries will take, and and that's and and that's affecting our choice. Um, one uncertainty is, you know, a, a poker. Anyone who's played poker, this is familiar. It's the idea that uh, you don't know really how strong the other side is and they have an incentive to bluff and so so putin can look and he can say well listen there's enough tremendous it, rather than misperceiving the situation he faced a tremendous amount of uncertainty even the best military analysts in the u.s struggle to predict how 
plucky and uh, effective the Ukrainian resistance would be and how unified Western sanctions would be. And most of them got it wrong, as did Putin, not because they were delusional, but because it was fundamentally uncertain. And on top of that, someone like Putin has to mistrust signals of Western and Ukrainian resolve because they have an incentive to bluff to try to get a better deal. And that logic just drives so much conflict uh, in the world, uh, often short conflicts until those uncertainties get revealed. But that's that's a fundamental strategic logic that we're too quick to mistake for mistakes and misperceptions in psychology. Um, the other is, is something that people call a commitment problem, which is maybe one of the worst terms in political science, but we have to live with it. Um, the, it's also pretty intuitive. It's the idea that if your adversary is rising and they're going to be incredibly powerful in future, then you have an opportunity, a window of opportunity to knock them out now and to solidify your, your lead and advantage. And, and, and there's nothing they can do to commit to you that they won't take advantage of their power in future, absent a, some commitment device. And therefore we call this the commitment problem. And, and we can see a little bit of that at work here in the sense that Russia uh, is worried about the democratic strengthening and the military strengthening of Ukraine in the future and potentially thinks that it is at peak leverage vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine and the rest and the West for perhaps the forever future. And so this is his window of opportunity to try to lock in advantage. So let me ask you, Chris, um, these are all make sense. They're all compelling. Mm -hmm. They certainly partly explain what Putin is doing in Ukraine, as well as many other wars. If you were to rank the five in terms of one that particularly explains why he invaded Ukraine and one that is the least significant, which would you choose? For me, it's, it's, it's almost certainly this uncheckedness. Um, and it's his uncheckedness, not only because of this private incentive and not only because he can ignore the costs, but because you can very easily see how it magnifies all of the other problems to the extent they're present. So the extent that he also has intangibles and these crazy ideologies, or he makes mistakes, it's all augmented by the fact that he's unchecked. And, and that's very commonly the case. And I think it's one of the fundamental reasons why uh, autocracy and personalized power is the biggest danger in the world. And then the one that is the least persuasive? In this case, I'd say it's the commitment problem. I think the idea, people use the commitment problem to explain World War I, the US invasion of Iraq, uh, very convincingly. Another great example, by the way, of people think overestimating the role of psychology and, and the experts recognizing the strategy. Um, all those cases had this incredible potential power rise of, of an adversary that was just hard to find some other way to solve the problem. That's not happening here. There's no dramatic and imminent rise of, of the Ukraine. There, there's a potential, there's definitely a window of opportunity. Russia is probably at peak leverage, but there isn't some insoluble commitment problem that's driving this war. So I don't want to make this whole show about Ukraine because you've written sure. this important book and it's not about Ukraine. But before the break, I want to just talk about how we should respond. We had Michael Ignatiev on the show, mm -hmm. anything but a warmonger, who right. talked to me about our need not to take the nuclear option off the table. Um, we had Marie Ivanovich on the show, mm -hmm. uh, Stephen Pfeiffer, both former ambassadors to Ukraine, US ambassadors, talking about the need to fight back. What should we be doing, Chris, in terms of fighting Putin on the one hand, and on the other hand, of course, bringing this war to an end. So it starts with remembering that just as there's 
always incentives to settle that when we do fight this will always end in the settlement at the end it can happen soon or it can happen later uh the the base overwhelming victories by one side or the other happen but they're very rare and let's be honest tragically it's not going to happen in this case and so the thing that worries me is that we are not doing what the chinese general sun Tzu told us to do which is to build your your adversary a golden bridge to peace uh along to, to to retreat upon we're actually making peace potentially look very unattractive to putin if if he thinks that sanctions will continue despite ending the violence if he thinks he'll be prosecuted for war crimes uh if he thinks that he will be a pariah state uh for the future if he thinks that other nations will be trying to uh, you know, undertake regime change in Russia through some means, that makes fighting not that much less attractive than than uh, than peace. And and so those might be the right things to do out of principle because maybe that's exactly the thing we should do if if there is going to be a, if there are signs of genocide, um, it might even be an effective deterrent to the the next autocrat who 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 thinks of going down this path. But that's a heavy price to pay. It's not a price that most of us will pay. It's a price Ukrainians will, will mostly pay. And I think we need to be conscious of that. So I think we need to think a little bit more about building that golden bridge to peace. That's a pretty controversial thing to say, Chris. I think people, there'd be a lot of people, yeah. Ukrainians and otherwise, who'd be very angry with that. And some, think, yeah. someone might say, and I'm not saying I'm, I would say this, they, I don't like bringing up Hitler and the Nazis because it's so boring. But yep. at what point, might you have made that argument in 1940 about Hitler? Right. So, so right. Appeasement is what we call compromise when we don't want to do it. Um, and it's a difficult decision. I think merely acknowledging that it's a difficult decision is, is, should not be controversial. I think let us, let us choose. I'm just saying choose to keep fighting potentially, but choose with open eyes, uh, choose, understand what you're sacrificing and also understand who's paying that price. I will say I don't think that's a controversial statement to uh, to Zelensky, for example, because he is looking for a settlement. He's very actively. Yeah, and Zelensky also... is a is a master. I wouldn't say a master propagandist, but he understands that all this is messaging. I mean, mm -hmm. God knows what he really thinks. He's he's playing to his Western audience in everything he says, and presumably right. to Putin. I mean, listen, I'm just, I'm just, partly I'm just making a factual claim, which is this will end up in a settlement at some point. Uh, and, and it may be a very long time for all the reasons you've just said. And, and I'm sympathetic to that. I'm not trying to say what they should do. I'm saying I do, I don't want people to, I don't want people to uh, not build that golden bridge because they don't realize, no. uh, because they didn't think it through, I guess is my point. And we've done so many shows on the First World War in Versailles. I mean, Versailles is obviously the, the model for figuring out how not to an end in a war. We're talking with uh, Christopher Blackman, the author of Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. Chris has been very generous in bringing his analysis to observing Ukraine, although it's not a book about Ukraine. I'm going to take a, a break now, Chris, and then afterwards I want to talk more about the book and particularly the the examples in the book and uh, how we get peace, not just about war. So we'll be back in about 60 seconds with Christopher Blackman, the author of Why We Fight. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways 
you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back with Christopher Blattman, the author of Why We Fight, University of Chicago academic, talking to me from his office at the University of Chicago and, of course, uh, Chicago. Uh, Chris, the, the book is quite eclectic. Um, you take lots of different examples from states and street gangs, from Africa, from all over the world. What are the, the, the most compelling anecdotes in your book about why indeed we fight and how to turn war into peace? Well, you know, this came, this was born out of my personal experience, which is not operating at this level of international conflicts, but rather, uh, you know, my day job has been looking at rebel groups in Uganda and child soldiers and reintegrating ex-rebels in West Africa and uh, street gangs in Chicago and organized criminals in Medellin, Colombia. And so that's been my trajectory and, 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 and ethnic conflict in villages in Africa for that matter too. And I came to this because I recognized some of the parallels between these conflicts between these groups at all these different levels. And so the book is trying to bring all this together rather than just say, I'm going to focus on one kind of war. I'm going to really broaden and we're going to learn a lot. And the, one of the things that most recently brought this home to me is spending the last five years working in Medellin, Colombia, which many people know from Narcos as the home of Pablo Escobar and the birth of the international drug trade. Uh, that doesn't, doesn't work like that anymore. The, they long got out of the international drug trade and they're, mostly focused the gangs and organized criminals are mostly focused on the local drug trade retail and there's 400 street gangs uh that control basically every square inch of territory in that city um and yet that city has a, a homicide rate that's half or even a third of of a lot of large american cities including chicago and so that's a bit of a puzzle right? you have this sort of these this valley with its green peaks packed to the brim with you know, hot-headed young men in gangs, and yet they've maintained the peace. And and this, to me, was a real lesson. That's why I went to to work there in trying to understand what's going on. And and one answer, well, one one answer is gangs don't like to fight for the same reasons countries don't like to fight. It's ruinous. 
uh, and they they uh, and and so they they find ways to negotiate. Now it's hard it's hard to do that with four hundred gangs. It's a little bit of anarchy, um, and that's why you have a set of higher level organized criminal groups, mafia like organizations that called razones that that have come in to supervise them. And the way this was sort of brought home was visiting a prison. We we talked a lot of these razon and, and gang leaders in prison to try to understand how they operate, uh, and and one of them was telling me about. Uh, an incident on, on, in his cell block where where two rival gangs members were playing billiards and uh, he doesn't remember why the argument broke out but but it did and and one side uh, pulled out their guns and shot the other side uh, and why they have guns in prison is a whole other podcast uh, but what, what what you know what began there was a cycle of of, of revenge killings, of, which we can imagine and, and they activated their alliances so those two gangs and, and all 400 gangs lined up between those behind one side or the other, and they geared for war. Um, but that billiards war never happened. Um, it would have been too costly. The, the higher level mafia leaders stepped in and, and, and solved those problems. So the, any unchecked, they were, they're, they're, they're unchecked interests, the fact that these gang leaders wouldn't bear the cost of war, they're like, well, we will, we'll give you some incentives at the point of a gun if we have to. You have intangible incentives, you have misperceptions that have led you to go down this warlike path. Well, we will disincentivize that too violently if need be. Um, you. You, 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 there's uncertainty, there's a commitment problem. Well, guess what? We will provide a bargaining table and we will provide commitment and you will exchange information or else. And so these mafias act a little bit like a UN Security Council uh, for a bunch of fractious nations and it works. It's funny, yeah, thinking about what you're saying, it suggests to me that we don't actually need the UN if what mm -hmm. you're saying is true. Not exactly. So I think we do. So I, listen, it's an imperfect and unequal mechanism and it only works some of the time. So so 10 years ago, there was a major gang war and Medellin became the most violent place on the planet, far more so than any civil war. And it happened again 10 or 15 years before that. So, so it's not a magic solution, uh, but they are an example of an institution, like a, almost a state-like institution that, that managed to order violence. They also keep the peace. You know, each of these mafias has maybe a few dozen of the street gangs under its control. So they're like a hegemon in that alliance. And they keep the peace within those combos. So the only time they have to bargain between uh, these mafia like Rosones is, is when the fight is between the Rosones or between the combos from two sides. And, and that's kind of how the world works, right? This is, we have the United States, their hegemon about, atop its sort of set of American states. Uh, not just, and by this, I mean the Caribbean, uh, Central and South America, uh, and, and helps. And collectively, they keep one another from fighting, and then it, they bargain basically on behalf of that alliance with, with the other hegemons with their local alliance. Chris, what do like you Russia and China? What do you make of realist international relations theorists like mm -hmm. Mearsheimer, who's been very much in the news? He's less in the news now, but right. he was in the news six or seven weeks ago because he seemed, in some sense, to be somehow vindicating Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Is there some truth in the realist? analysis of international politics, particularly why, mm -hmm. why countries or nations or groups go to war? Yeah. So Mearsheimer's colleague of mine in the political science department. Um, and I think, listen, a lot of what I just explained to you was very much in, was large swaths of it were in what we call this realist tradition. The idea that like a country is pursuing its own interests, that it's, that it's working hard in its own interests and doesn't really care about the cost of war to the enemy, but is mainly only really thinking about the cost to themselves and normally has a strategic interest in peace, but will go to war if necessary. That's very much 
in line with realism. Um, the 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 main thing that um, but but the, the 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 thing is that realism also often comes with a whole bunch of other assumptions about the way the world works. Uh, I think the the Mearsheimer got created controversy because he was basically saying the problem is NATO. NATO should have been more calculating about this. They should have thought through what kinds of incentives they're giving Russia, given that this is the way the world works, and that it was a strategic mistake for 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 the West to pursue this. That it was essentially an error. Um, I don't think that's, I don't think, I think that's partly true. I, I don't think it's why this is happening. I think this is, it overstates the role of the West here. I think this, fundamentally this is a battle between Ukraine and, uh, and Russia and the West certainly remember it goes back to what I said about the commitment problem. The fact that, uh, the fact that a, a swing in power, right. And, and Ukraine potentially getting armed by the West and potentially joining NATO means that Russia is at peak leverage. And I said, that matters. That sort of is giving a slight incentive for war, but I said it was the least important. And, and I think Mearsheimer is implicitly ranking that as the most important. And that's where we differ. But you, you, you do include some realist analysis in your work. What about Hobbes? Hobbes has always been a very powerful thinker for international relations theorists, thinkers about war. It seems as if you kind of put Hobbes back in through the back door. You suggest we don't like each other, but that doesn't necessarily lead to violence. So on the one hand, you're Hobbesian. On the other hand, you're not. Is that fair? Well, so Hobbes is uh, in the same vein. Hobbes is a very realist thinker in this in, in this same this kind of cold calculus of groups pursuing their self interest and choosing to use politics or violence to wherever necessary and only being uh, diverted from the violent path only because it's costly, not because it's sort of morally better. That's a very realist view. That's very much in line with Hobbes. Um, but secondly, what's in line with Hobbes is Hobbes had the same message for us, which is that war is not optimal. Now that's confusing because he uses this word war, which he spells W-A-R-R-E. And, uh, and we think, and, 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 and this is supposed to be our ever-present state, but if you get into the details, um, what he actually means by that is this intense, loathsome competition that isn't necessarily violent. And that is universal. That is what I'm saying is going on. That's what realists, that's what basically almost any observer will say is going on, this brutal, violent, loathing competition of your enemy that only sometimes breaks into violence. And, and that's what he meant by war and, uh, and not the fact that we're actually physically fighting all the time. What about Rousseau? He always comes out when you talk about Hobbes, who had an alternative view, very radically alternative view of history, that there was a time before society, Rousseau seemed to suggest, mm -hmm. where we liked each other. Was he delusional, Chris? So I don't think so. I mean, I think there was an exaggeration of just how peaceful ancient societies were and people like to beat up on this Rousseauian version of history for that reason. Um, but where he was onto something and vindicated is the idea that rather than being an inherently violent and hateful and aggressive species, and we are sometimes, obviously, is that we're a fundamentally cooperative species. So the re one of the reasons that uh, we mostly don't fight is because we prefer politics over war. And, uh, and most of the time we attain that. And then every Rousseauian cultural innovation, every time we ourselves get a little bit better at having empathy for the other group, uh, that makes war a little bit more costly to us because now we don't just consider the cost to ourselves, we consider the cost to the other. And it makes us even more averse to using violence as a tool of, of bargaining. 
And so I do think Rousseau is, is vindicated in the sense that slowly we've created a much more cooperative and Rousseauian world. And that is why I think violence is, interpersonal violence, especially so low today. David Graeber's posthumous last book um, talks about a tradition beyond, or an alternative, a third way beyond Hobbes and Rousseau. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've looked at his work or that or that theory. I have bought it, and I have it has been sitting on my bedside yeah. It's table. like most, it's such a big book. It's like yep. one of those books that everyone has and no one reads. But um, is there an alternative anthropology that gets beyond both Hobbes and Rousseau to make sense of war and peace? I mean, to me, it's the integration. It's to recognize that uh, we. We may have incentives, strategic incentives and psychological drives that lead us to go to war and that feels that lead us to be intensely and viciously competitive, which is the Hobbesian us. And yet we as a society, we as a, as a species have been incredibly successful in very slowly creating states and cultures and norms and, and, and ideologies that run against that and so rather than call that a third way i would i would more just sort of see it as i try to see it in these terms of of taking all five of these factors and essentially building padding against them and and essentially building more insulation from all of these things that would cause war and i think that's what we've been so successful about the atlantic ran a piece about how we can all as individuals help ukraine you were quoted in it, you were talking about effective altruism. Mm -hmm. Do you think of effective altruism as self-interested altruism? Can altruism be self-interested? Are you squaring the circle again when it comes to Hobbes and Rousseau? You know, I think, uh, you know, it's a deep question that I don't have the answer to. Like, I think I I wonder that myself, how much is my own altruism just simply self-serving? Uh, how much is our own, how much of, of, of our cooperation and my efforts to, you know, be, play my little cooperative part in this species and in this big project, uh, just my way to sort of try to make meaning out of a life that otherwise doesn't generally make a lot of sense. Um, and so, so that's the altruism, but then that's the hard part. The easy part is the effect of altruism. The, there's just so much we do that is totally useless. I talk a lot about these interventions in the book and in, in the realm of peace. Um, and there's so much we can do that's very cost effective and just very effective and impactful. And we're really bad as a society about doing more of one of those and less of the other. And so so that, you know, that to me is where I sort of drift in the direction of effective altruism, because I've chosen for my own uh, 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 reasons to be altruistic and, and, and conditional on that, why, why the heck wouldn't I want to be effective? Uh, what about the role of technology, particularly network technology in the 21st century? Did a show a few weeks ago with Silicon Valley entrepreneur Samit Mehta, who argues that we live in the age of cyber warfare without even knowing. In other words, it's going on all the time. Does technology, and particularly the digital technology behind cyber warfare, does that change why we fight and the difference mm-hmm. between war and peace, or are we still living in the same rules in spite of all this new technology, Chris? I mean, I think a lot of it, I think it fits in the same rules. It it creates, you know, I talked about one of the five being uncertainty. This is one of the deep challenges with cyber warfare is 
you never really know who the attacker is and attackers have some incentives to make it look like some other rival attacked you. And now as a country, you have to decide whether or not to escalate and respond based on that. So it's actually a very complex um, choice and strategic decision to make where things could spin out of control. Um, as it happens, the other Buena de Mosquito, Ethan Buena Mosquito, is this is his, you know, bread and butter as a game theorist. And uh, and he's worked out how this can be so deeply problematic. So it's I think it's a good example in some of just how one of these five factors, uncertainty, is is gets maybe grows rather than uh, uh, lessens over time because of technological change. Good stuff. Why we fight the roots of war and the paths to peace couldn't be a more timely book, given what's happening at the moment. Uh, Congress, Chris, congratulations on the book. What else should people be reading as the war in Ukraine still ravages the world, in addition to your new book in mid-April 2022? You know, I've been going back. I just read Tim Fry's book. Uh, I believe it's called Weak Strongman. And the limits of power in Putin's Russia, and Tim is uh, was was a colleague of mine at Columbia University when I was there. He's a, spent forty years working in Russia, and it's to me it's it's the most engaging dive into what the actual social science says about autocracy and how autocracies in general work, and just how we can understand what Putin is doing and why. Partly not just by understanding someone the Russia itself, which he helps us do through hard data rather than, you know, talking heads, but more importantly, just when we start to look at the logic of what they're doing in the con and just how autocracies work in general, uh, I think it really gives us a deep understanding of like not, not only why Russia is behaving this way, but it helps us understand other autocracies in the world from China to Venezuela and so on. Finally, Chris Blackman, Christopher Blackman, author of Why We Fight. Chris, who's in charge of the world in April 2022. Who's running the show these days? Well, I think we're, I mean, it seems obvious that we're all dancing to Putin's tune right now. Uh, everything, I mean, everything that happens in the next few months will be a reaction to his actions. Uh, that's the sad truth. Um, and this is probably the, you know, the most seismic geopolitical event since September 11th. And so I think it's fair to say he'll be running what we do in some fashion for the next 20 years until the next big seismic shift.